This one thing just came. Beep, beep. This is Beers with Alice. Thrust, Beers, and Mouse of Bliss. Welcome and welcome back to another episode of Beers with Talos. We'll call this one episode seven. We have some special guests today. Uh, we have Sean Baird joining us from the Talos threat research team uh, talking about the fake news challenge. For once today, Joel and Matt provide some, some fantastic value. Today, the part of Matt only is being played by Kate Nolan and the part of Joel Essler is being played by Dave Maynard. And here we go. One more time, one more episode. Welcome to Beers with Talos. All right. So, as always, we start each episode off. We go around the table, kind of just talk about what's on our minds. Today, Craig, you're up first. Yeah, I wanted to call Matt out on something we discussed about three episodes ago. We were talking about the uh, the Samba vulnerability that somewhat resembled the, uh, the WannaCry SMB worm. And you might remember Matt's position was a very, I don't want to use the word arrogant, but a very spiritful, no one will ever attack Linux servers for a ransom because they're always used for small DDoS clients uh, and bots to, you know, travel around the internet with and have fun with. Uh, I would like to point out this week that we have the largest ransom ever paid. I believe it was around 1 million Bitcoin for a provider that was compromised running mostly Linux servers. So Matt, thoughts on that? <laughs> Matt, Matt, Matt can't answer that question this week. Maybe next week, Craig. When did Matt? When did Matt start referring to himself in the third person? That is <laughs> Matt, Matt, yeah, Matt is always Matt. going to refer to himself in the third person. Uh, Come on, but, Matt. Uh, Anything? No, you got nothing on that one. I got nothing. Well, you see, um, that's true. However. The other thing to remember, Craig, that they didn't actually hit the Linux part of that equation. They hit all those Windows boxes that were being hosted on that Linux part of the equation. So still, Matt is absolutely still in the 100% correct box at the moment. I guess my point is, you know, we always see talk about adversaries evolving, and I thought it was a really hilarious point. Matt's point was completely valid two, three weeks ago when we recorded the session, and yet this week is the time the attackers took to try and bridge that gap. Just how we predicted, you know, the Sam Sam attack and the WannaCry attack, you know, we're slowly but sure, surely seeing ransomware move towards more OSs and more types of deployments so that attackers can increase their monetization of their malware. So I thought that was funny. So what you're saying is that this is all Matt's fault. Is that right? Yeah, yes, you know, much. Matt gave them the idea and they ran with it. I think we should nail him to the cross for it. What's more important then is that apparently a lot of attackers listen to this podcast. Yes. You know, we do get a lot of downloads in the Ukraine. I couldn't... Of course they do. Why wouldn't they? Well, you're, you're implying that the mm. attackers come from the Ukraine? Why that would you be a coincidence? That? I think it probably is, don't you? You're a coincidence. I'm sure we I mean, have a lot of really promising customers there. Yeah. Uh, the other thing, though, I, I did want to discuss was the. Um, I know we're going to talk about FOSS came in depth in a minute, but I thought it was really interesting how we almost released uh, FOSS came vulnerabilities at the same time as FSecure. Yet, while we both were able to find and disclose quite a few vulnerabilities, uh, only we did it responsibly. And so I bring this up not to try and play one-upmanship, but I think it's a very interesting concept when we're trying to disclose vulnerabilities responsibly. At what point do you no longer wait for the vendor to respond? Because FOSCAM, you know, I believe it did take us several tries to initiate a discussion with them as well. And mm -hmm. so it's kind of curious on everyone's thoughts on that, right? Like when is, uh, when have you notified long enough and you can go ahead and drop that zero day? 
Well, on the on the Foscam thing, I mean, it's a uh, we did notify them quite a while ago, and we do have a ninety day disclosure policy. Um, but it took a while to get the discussions going with Foscam, and um, I think some of that may have been a translation issue there, um, bit from English to Chinese and back again, right? So things like that kind of tend to uh, you know make things run a little longer than you would like uh, but they did work with us very responsibly when we got that process going and uh, you know they did, they were very responsive um, in the end so you know I, I I don't know anything of this irresponsible disclosure piece that happened as well uh, you know if you, you want to fill us out on that Craig that'd be awesome but for oh, released a write-up of I don't know a couple of a oh, yeah. couple of okay bugs, um, but I was more or less curious of the fact that they did so without any notification, mm. with no CVEs, and without a vendor's patch. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and while it's it's always good to know that your device is vulnerable, I think it's better to try and go the extra mile to ensure that that patch gets published. Because the reality is, without a way to patch these devices, the vast majority are going to be in homes that don't have security devices, that right. don't have a way to defend them. Right. I'd like to point out that I almost single-handedly created the Snort support community over the years, and I've seen this happen a lot. Joel, that's great. Thanks. <laughs> cool story, bro. So I do want to, <laughs> I do want to uh, take a quick second. We do have uh, something a little bit different uh, going on today than, than we usually do on the podcast. We do have a couple guests. Uh, one of those uh, you just heard, we have, we have Dave Maynard who's uh, joining us today in in place of Joel, uh, and we'll get a little background on him. And also, uh, we'll have a, an interview, and we have a special guest uh, all during the podcast, and we'll be interviewing him later. Sean uh, is a Talos team member who has had some pretty cool things going on the last couple of weeks uh, with the fake news challenge. So we'll be talking with both of them throughout the show. Um, I, think, Matt, I think, Mitchell, it should be noted that uh, Dave actually does come from the Department of Alternate Facts. Um, so bear that in mind whenever he says anything at all. Okay. Indeed, I am channeling Joel today. So don't think of me. <laughs> think of Joel. <laughs> I, I already have. Why don't you work in the fact that you were mayor of a small town? I feel like that's a every three episode reminder. Right, guys? Wait, well, I think it should be brought up every episode, to be quite honest. Uh, maybe. Maybe. Well, there is a city in America that elected Joel Essler their mayor at like 18 years old. Ah, oh, fantastic. So we do have uh, next up, Matt. You are, you are next on the list today. And I see you have some interesting, uh, interesting topics here in the, in the spreadsheet that you want to talk about. Yes, I do. Uh, first off, it is today that we're recording this. It is National Take Your Dog to Work Day. And... We no longer have dogs in the office, and that makes me very sad. I bet that makes very Nigel sad as well. I, I didn't know that you were into like, dogs. Yes. Well, you know. Everybody, everybody in the office in Fulton, Maryland, is into dogs. So wait, you're telling me that Cisco is an anti-dog company? Uh, no, actually. So the mm. Fulton office is a special case, and um, it's not the building itself is not actually owned by Cisco. It's rented from a, another person, and... It's that company who is anti-dog. What's their name? Cisco have actually, uh, I can't remember what their name is, but Cisco have actually done things, you know, with with, uh, bringing dogs into the workplace and and seeing how it works and, you know, trying to see if it's a good environment for everybody to bring their dogs in and in other places. But unfortunately, they can't do it in Fulton, Maryland. 
We used to be able to bring our dogs in in the old office, but uh, we did indeed. Yes, and and we do miss that. Yes, very much. I've got I've got to ask you guys. So this is a new thing. I have a puppy bender. I call him a puppy. He's about a year old. He's kind of hesitant on the swimming lately, which is weird for a lab. Uh, and then the other day, a bee landed on his forehead, and all of a sudden, he was really not hesitant about swimming, and he jumped <laughs> in the pool and swam around for about seven minutes. So my question is, are dogs naturally terrified of bees for some reason, or, or what? What's up with that? Yeah, well, dogs are not stupid, Craig. They know these things. Well, he things. saw all the kids run to the other side of the pool, so oh. I kind of figured that might have been his cue. So you have some dogs that think that the buzzing sounds really delicious, and then they eat them. And then you have to go to the emergency vet to make sure they're not allergic to bees. Um, so your dog being scared of bees is actually a good thing. Also, maybe your dog just feels like he doesn't have enough buoyancy and you need a, a, a CFD, which is a canine flotation device for him. Oh, I have a CFD. Do, you do have a CFD? Fits appropriately. Right, it sits next to him every time he jumps in the pool. Oh, good. That's even better. So he knows it's there and it's available to him and he can put it on if he wants to. Absolutely. I uh, I have a lot of input on this, uh, but you're going to have to wait for my book, Joel's Guide to Dogs, to get more. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be looking forward to reading. Oh, anything else uh, you got for us there today, Matt? So, yeah, I do. So uh, part of our team was looking at upgrading all of our scripts and products that we we do to uh, Python from Python 2.7 to Python 3. And here's why Python 3 will never be a thing, because because print is now a function and you have to put parentheses around it and it's annoying and that's all i have to say about it i mean Matt, if that's if that's how you feel i will vote <laughs> with you to stay away from three i had no idea you felt that strongly very strongly very strongly about parentheses and i don't like them they are extra characters i have to type i get, memory it, I get it okay next up on the list nigel well um Funny you should mention the Python upgrade. Uh, I've been that's been on our minds for quite some time. Upgrading things from Python two six to two seven first, in fact, and then possibly using Python three. I don't know. But personally, I think it's a fad. Uh, it's not actually a real language. Nobody should actually be using it. There's no point. Um, but still, probably better than Ruby. Python in general, or, or just uh, Python? Yeah, 3? Python in general. Just in general, it's very silly. But uh, anyway. Let the hate um, mail roll in. That's yeah. beers with Palos at Cisco.com. Attention, Nigel. Yes. Is many, many years ago, I went on, the, on a, uh, a training course, actually, for um, a product that uses Python. And uh, never having encountered Python, or at least never encountered it to write Python anyway, previous to that, um, it, was, it baffled me that something could use uh, spaces or tabs to lay things out, and if you mix them up, nothing would work. Uh, you know, you had basically one or the other, and uh, you had to have things lined up properly and all that before it would even start working for you. I, and it blew my mind, and I was pretty much and lost. We all with know it which one you're supposed to use. Yes, uh, Perl. That's what you're supposed to use. <laughs> they, uh, no. I was pretty much lost until I found a a. Um, Python to Perl Codex, and then I was fine with it. I was rocking along after that. But well, uh, I want to anyway. just address Matt's resounding no. Matt, oh, yeah. I think true freedom is when there's 35 different ways, at least, to write the same function so that no one else can figure out what in the hell you were doing. Yeah, it's, it's called job security. Like, that's how... <laughs> um, yeah, but, but a counterpoint is that, you know, my team does a lot of data science work and telemetry, and that's 
kind of all of those libraries are built in with Python. And unfortunately, Perl doesn't have those libraries, though. I know we have a couple of holdouts who keep trying to rewrite Python data science libraries in Perl. Um, but that's the difference. Who, who you would know. do that? <laughs> no idea. <laughs> but you have to name names. Yeah, they, they probably should do that anyway, you know, so that it runs faster and more efficiently. But um, the other stuff that's been on my mind this week uh, has actually been been those disclosures uh, that we were just talking about, Mitchell, for FOSCAM. Uh, we actually released about uh, 20 of those uh, since the last time we spoke, um, as well as, I think, three more for Matrix SSL. Um, something about their certificates not being all that great. But the FOSCAM uh, ones were, were quite neat and quite wide-ranging in their... Um, you know, the vulnerabilities that we, we have in those. Everything from default, you know, uh, usernames and password stuff to uh, straight-up overflows, and, uh, you know, without authentication. Uh, so there's this quite... They're all listed on telusintelligence.com and vulnerability reports. Uh, go take a look at the Disclose Vulnerability Report tab there, and then I have just browse, browse through all of the FOSCAM ones and, and, you know, see what you think. Uh, we, we also list the CVSS scores for those as well alongside, so you can see the really super serious ones that come in. You know, anything that's uh, you know, above 9 is, is pretty special. Um, anything from 8 to 9 is also quite good. Yeah, quite a range of things there uh, that we have going on, and we actually have a bunch more things in the works. Uh, you can see those on the Zero Days tab. Uh, we have a, a, a number of things still outstanding, but we expect to be releasing more before the end of this month. Um, you know, when they reach their 90-day thing. Yes, sir. Sorry, no, I just wanted to put some color on that. You know, a lot of people hear FOSCAM, and they think, I've never heard of that. I've never heard of that vendor. Why do I care? Mm-hmm. Uh, I care because FOSCAM was probably the number one camera vi- vendor sold via Woot and Amazon for the last several years. Yes. Uh, when I was picking out an um, IP camera to use as a baby monitor for my kids, I used one of these cameras. It's actually one of the ones that's taken apart on Edmund's desk right now. Mm-hmm. So this is not a small vendor. These are probably no, the most high-yield, mostly sold uh, you know, cameras on Amazon. Absolutely, yes. And we actually, as well, we actually have another thing that I can't talk to you about at the moment uh, because we've uh, literally had the guys get together uh, at Recon this week. And while they were there, they went and grabbed another consumer device and um, they have vulnerabilities in that consumer device. It's going to be pretty interesting when it does come out. But, um, you know, just to give you a little teaser there, it's uh, in about 90 days you'll find out exactly what it is. But less than that when it gets onto the website. Is it a vending machine? It is not <laughs> a vending machine, no. <laughs> well, well, then what do the CIA uh, guys use? I don't understand. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Hold on. Uh, actually, next up is Davey jo- Mayor Davy Joel Messler. So you're, you're, you're next in the roundup. So what's on, on your mind today uh, other than uh, what you were just mentioned there? The funniest thing I saw this week and also related to security, the most interesting I think I saw was uh, CIA employees that were uh, – or CIA contractors that were sacked for hacking a vending machine. Uh, and I thought that, that kind of just sums up uh, – Well, it, let's, let's be fair. That's not actually what they were sacked for, is it? They weren't sacked for actually hacking the vending machine. What they were sacked for was stealing all of the contents of that vending machine after they'd hacked Indeed. it, right? Indeed. So they were they were sacked for uh, weaponizing 
their their hack. Yes. Right? And making use of it. Right. Which so uh, liberating candy bars and drinks. Well, was it what was it? It was over three thousand dollars. It was like three grand worth of snacks. Yeah. I mean that's a lot of snacks. Those candy bars are probably sixty five bucks each if it's, you know, federal government scheduled well, yeah, pricing. True. Could be. Yeah, that's true. Um, the thing is though, with that I, I want to know how long it how come it took them so long to get rid of these people, right? Because that's a lot of candy, <laughs> right? And and if you know how these things work, when the, when the guy comes around to refill the thing, he t- also takes out the money and takes account of the items that have been vended, etc. So you should know pretty quickly if somebody's trying to rip you off, at least. Um, and wasn't this I mean, from, like, 2012 as well? It was indeed, yeah. It was a few well, years. And they were sacked a couple years ago as, as well, if I... You know, they, right. they, there's just a while now, back the report was it's just only over. now that the report has actually been, um, you know, declassified enough that everybody can, you know, know about it and go, what the hell were you people thinking? Well, I mean, this reminds me, in middle school, we would have, now they were doing something, they would disconnect uh, from the, the machine, from the network, and then they would use like a blank, I guess there's a payment card system uh, that you can use in the cafeterias and, and whatnot uh, at the office they were in. And that's that's precisely what these guys have, have done, right? They've unplugged it and they've used a card with no balance on it to get the uh, get the candy out. But my, you know, the thing there is, come on, you're a government contractor. It's not like you get paid minimum wage now, is it? You can probably afford to purchase some candy from the machine. Well, and I mean, come on. Like, if somebody's like, hey, dude, can you buy me a candy bar? I left my wallet at home. Who's going to be like, no? <laughs> well, I mean, if it's, like, if it's like 15 yeah. people who are stealing it, you can steal 3,000 candy bars pretty quick. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. I mean, there's the other problem, right? How, how many people did you tell? How stupid are you? Come on. Stop it. Well, right. From a, well, from a network, like from a, a, like a hacker point of view, right? Like the Talos vending machines don't last, uh, have, have been known to be, you know, well, I mean, there there have been incidents. Let's not, you know, you know. There are errors in the code. Sometimes candy just falls out. I don't know what you're implying. Well, usually it's not the candy part that that gets done in. It's it's usually the drinks and maybe the coffee machine things like that where you know people get a bit angsty when they can't either get their Mountain Dew or their local, you know, their usual little cup of Joe in the mornings. Right? Then they get you know a bit. It's worth pointing out that they're free. So true, they are free indeed. Yes. Yeah. That, see, that's I, there's a reason they're free, and I think it's just so we don't have to fire people because somebody knew that somebody would be hacking those machines, so we might as well just make them free anyway. Well, that's part of it, sure. But uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> all I was trying to do is get a cup of coffee, and there was a uh, there was a shell open on the coffee machine. So yeah, hey, approximately two weeks after we got the coffee, I don't even think it was two weeks after the coffee machine uh, arrived. It was we had shell on it. And it was broken for longer than we had it. Yeah, that really taught everyone a brutal lesson, right? And and that lesson is this. You, you know, you don't poop in your own backyard, do you? Right? If you want to hack the coffee machine, go to a different floor. Don't <laughs> do it in our kitchen. Yeah, or just do it when you come by to meet with your boss. Whatever. So, Sean, special guest, do you have anything that you want to uh, drop into the, into, the, into the show here at the top? I mean, we're going to be talking about the fake news challenge a whole lot later. Uh, otherwise, really, my mind is single tracking right now. The Chicago, the world champion Chicago Cubs are playing the Nationals in Washington, D.C. this week. Oh, my God. Yeah, indeed. Really I failed to get easy. tickets for some silly reason. Dude, I love a good game of sports ball. What happened next? I think LeBron yeah, so, James is involved uh, somehow. 
You know what? I wouldn't be surprised because the only thing that makes DC Heat tolerable is is a lot of beer. So that's why this uh, this podcast is going so well so far. Fantastic. The only thing that makes DC just, tolerable is just, when they cut the the uh, World Champion Chicago Cubbies come into town. Let's be honest. You don't get to say that much. I mean, we got to give Cubs fans uh, the chance to to brag about that when they can. It's only been 176 years since they've won baseball title of any yeah, kind since, since Joel was a little boy hey soon we'll be saying the same thing about Talos' softball team we're getting there we're uh one win and one uh one tie so oh we're doing no we've heard about your win <laughs> i think i heard that episode as well yeah. <laughs> no hiding it from our listeners so we we did have a lot going on uh this last since last time we recorded uh, a couple weeks ago we've had a lot of stuff come out on the blog there's been a lot of uh activity with some old stuff some new stuff uh coming old stuff coming back and some new stuff that we haven't seen before uh craig do you want to tell us a little bit about some of the things the outreach team has uh published in the last in the last week or so no i'm kind of done talking about it craig one damn job, Craig. <laughs> it's just like Matt. It's so real. That's because Matt is here. Of course it is. Who else would be? <laughs> uh, so, you know, I, I think the most interesting one was the Delphi malware we looked at this week. Um, basically, a piece of malware written in Delphi uh, designed to attack Palestine. Uh, we covered it pretty extensively on our blog. And, you know, I think this is another one of those examples where, you know, regional threats are not incredibly common, especially not advanced ones. But there are certain cases where they get very specific to a very certain region. Uh, and when that happens, they can be remarkably effective. You know, and there, there was a lot of really odd stuff in this. And I, did you guys read this one? Did you see the uh, the goal? Uh, Lebanese singers? Yeah. 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 So I, I hadn't followed this at all. I had no idea who these people were. But apparently this video was banned by the Lebanese Justice Ministry. And simply by airing it, uh, you can be fined. Uh, I think it was like thirty thousand dollars. Nice. Yeah. So you guys want to watch it real quick? Yeah, <laughs> I do. Hold on. Let me write myself through Palestine. Hold on a second. <laughs> yeah, good to go. I also enjoyed the fact that, again, like some of the malware actors we've had recently, particularly those leaked by the Shadow Brokers group, uh, they kept the variable names really lively, like lots of pop culture references. Uh, I don't know if you guys noticed it was posting to the White Walkers API, which was pretty funny. Uh Um, I'd like to think this is a new trend in malware, so that as I'm analyzing it, I can have a nice chuckle thinking about the White Walkers and everything, right? Uh Wouldn't that be great? Yeah, I think it'd be fantastic. Yeah, because the malware authors are definitely there to entertain you, Craig. (laughs) (laughs) No, seriously, what is a White Walker? Game of Thrones reference? Yeah. Yeah. I I do want to go back to the Foscam vulnerabilities just because of the sheer number of them. You know, I I think this is a really good example of an IoT device that gets built. It works, right? From a functional standpoint, it's a complete success. You know, I think it's normal for companies when they achieve that 1.0 and they've got that initial success to ship it, right? That's how they make their money. That's how they recover their, uh, their cost. The problem is, like most IoT devices, these were never given a proper security audit. And that's why between Talos uh, and all the other companies who've looked at them, they've found so many issues. And I really hope this stands out for the industry as an example of why you need to build security in from the beginning. You know, these devices are built in a way where strapping security alongside of the existing software is going to be pretty difficult and it's going to require a lot of engineering effort and thought. 
Whereas if they just initially designed it from that way to begin with, with, say, you know, a product security baseline, uh, it would have been a lot easier. And it would have saved a lot of people significant time and money designing these patches and implementing these patches at the last second. Sure. I mean, but then I think you have to go and take a look at what uh, engineers are doing in college and, and is that the way that program is, programming is uh, approached, right? Do you write with security in mind when you're doing a college project or do you just need to get the thing done so that you can get your grade and move on, right? Well, and think about even like expensive IoT devices, right? Do you remember, maybe you guys don't, but a few years ago, Cisco had, uh, I think it was Xerox copiers and they all had their own little individual firewall. And when you Googled why, uh, apparently there were several security vulnerabilities that they couldn't fix, and it was cheaper to attach this little firewall to filter out those packets. Nice. I think that's a reasonable yeah. approach. Well, and a lot of the vulnerabilities that we saw in there, uh, to your point, Craig, are you know stuff that is it's happened before a bunch. Like, I mean, there was there was hard coded creds, there was a bunch of other stuff that it's happened before. It's like the same old stuff that we see, but there was just so many of them kind of piled on each other, especially for somebody who is a a white label manufacturer for a bunch of other camera brands. I mean, it's not just the Foscam brand stuff that's at risk. It's everybody else they sell to. Yeah. Uh, um, has their firmware in it. Yeah. And so that's why when I say uh, the need of a product security baseline, right? If that's a new term to you, what a product security baseline means is 25, 30 things that we will not do in this software. Right. So simple things like uh, I guarantee you it will not have any backdoors. It will not have any test accounts. It will not have any undocumented accounts. Uh, I can guarantee you that passwords are going to have to meet a minimum standard. Right. I can guarantee you that I've tested all the input fields on all the input and made sure that I can't manipulate them in any way, uh, you know, by using a fuzzer or something like that. Um, Things like that. If a company publishes, at least, you know, it's part of the QA test case. Right. Maybe maybe it's not perfect. Right. They may still have bugs that exist in those issues, but at least, you know, they're looking for it. And when you see devices that don't have that uh, that come out from these companies, you're going to have buggy software. It's just the sheer nature of the game. And these aren't things that are going to go away anytime soon, right? We think about these kind of uh, exposures and vulnerabilities, but even IoT botnets, right? As more people connect their fridge to the internet, uh, that's going to cause massive, massive issues with ransomware, spam campaigns, uh, DDoS attacks, things like that. Just a Absolutely. whole world of bad news. Yeah, yeah Sean, yeah. that's a great point. And, you know, I, I think, you know, to, to play up Matt's angle, I know Matt's just itching to chime in. Matt's point here is always, oh, what's going to happen? It's behind a firewall and it's on net. Um, Sorry, that was my Matt impression. I know it wasn't quite that great. Well but no, spot on, Matt. I couldn't tell the difference. It sounds just like Matt. Yeah, so, you know, the, the problem is I'm not concerned about that necessarily as a first uh, first uh, fortress, right? I think what's going to happen is attackers are going to come in, hit your Windows box via browser exploit, and then scan your network to see what they have. Uh, they're going to see, oh, look, it's an old Apache web server that hasn't been updated in five years. I'm going to go compromise that and see if there's any data I can steal or ransom off. Once they get there, they realize, oh, it's Sean's refrigerator. Wow, Sean needs to go buy some groceries. He lives like a second grader. Uh, you know, and then maybe it'll just sit there for forever, stealing data out of Sean's network. Well, I mean, if there's something valuable in Sean's network, that's, you know, a reasonable thing to do. Um, I think that uh, with, with a lot of these things, you know, all these new constantly. Uh, and the reason for that. Uh, it comes down to many things. Part of it is the way things are approached. Like you say, is, is security first in mind? Probably not, because usually money's first in mind, right, when you're developing anything to sell. Um, but also you have to think about um, you know, networks and implementations and, and how 
people have their networks set up um, and also the complexity of those networks, especially if they've been around for 20, 30 years or more these days. Um, you know, something like along the scale of uh, a multinational, multi-billion dollar company has, you know, it's going to be around for quite some time and have a, a monstrous network with lots of things on it that, uh, well, you're probably in a situation where nobody, no one person actually knows everything that's there, right? It's much too large, much too expansive to, for people to know that anymore. Um, and, and there are going to be things on there that nobody knows about any longer, right? Because the people that, that did know about it have long since left and gone on to other things or, you know, retired or, you know, whatever. Um, and there are still, there's, so there's stuff there that, that is just hanging out that people don't know about. Uh, and, and when you're talking about large production networks, you know, do you really have a, a, the time to go and investigate those things? Do you have the time to go and find them? Do you know how to find them, right? It's, there's, there's so many things that goes on that, you know, you, you're never going to be perfect. And so I think the, the best course of action for anyone to take when they're talking about networks and what they're doing and what they're looking after from a security standpoint is, you know, what, what can we do? What's sensible, um, you know, and, and sh- how do we prepare for the worst, right? What do we do? post-compromise because at some point you know that it's going to get compromised how do we recover you know what, what how are we going to move on from there right um especially when you're thinking about modern trends in in like the the WannaCry example for example you know the whole thing of exploiting things moving around the network from you know on on uh, shared resources and then encrypting data um etc what do you what do you do well if you have a copy of your data that's not encrypted, then why would you bother paying a ransom, right? If if you're able to make sure that, that something isn't allowed to traverse around your network using um, old shares and things or, or silly ways of, of sharing stuff, then, you know, you're not going to have that same problem. Not to say that you won't be vulnerable to something or you won't, you know, get compromised with something, but at least... You know, if you're in a position where you can contain the threat and and recover from it, then you're in a much better position, I think. And I think that's why it's so important to follow best practices as far as backups and having some sort of retrospective technology like AMP so you can go back and say what was touched. Right, exactly. Yeah, you can see where things have been, you know, and what you need to go and take a look at. In in these cases, especially with embedded devices, uh, people don't realize that if you're able to compromise a device, you can update or change the firmware in such a way that we really not might not be able to detect it. And even if you did, if you tried to do something like a, a restorative factory flash or whatnot, you might never be able to get rid of whatever this was that compromised it. Right, and that would be a, a great example of why strapping on security doesn't necessarily work, right? If I'm not validating the image before I allow it to be installed, who knows what's going to happen, right? There's a lot of actors out there now investing heavily in hardware compromising. One of the things now about a lot of IoT devices, uh, like when you're architect, well, when people are architecting them, they're just buying components from various manufacturers right, and slapping them together. They're, they're not even ever really seeing the original code. All they know is they have like a, you know, a, a Python script that will do API calls between you know, two various things, right? So I am really glad even... you brought that up. When we were doing our analysis, uh, Edmund would actually, he had found several cameras that had no manufacturing name on them anywhere. 
It was like someone got components out of a bin and slapped it together and was like, sell this for $10. It's pretty great stuff. There's a lot of accounts on Twitter you can follow of people that live in Taiwan or China that are involved in like IoT device manufacturing, right? They're getting specs from people and uh, like building devices and sending them back. And like the the non-attributable parts of those are really coming from something like a bin, right? Like somebody has generated 90,000 Wi-Fi controllers and they're getting used in this product this week. No idea where they're from. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. That's terrifying. Is well, it's completely terrifying because nobody, you know, you so you see like Linksys or D-Link or whatever on their package. You have no idea what components are using, where they came from. Uh, there's no like inventory anywhere that tells you, and they try to hide it from you actively. Like, well, you know, we we don't want you to know that like between like Rev A and Rev B of this product, we changed the board slightly. You just know that you have a product and that's it. I mean, it's tied that back into building security in, right? This just kind of highlights the importance of supply chain security, even what we would traditionally call, you know, infosec, right? You got to know where your parts are coming from and what's on them. Yeah, you you certainly want to, you need to really steer clear of, you know, things like uh, Davey's red hot Wi-Fi chip sores. You know, you probably don't (laughs) want to use those. Um, I mean, I want one to take apart and I set it pretty hot. Yeah. Well, there's a reverse engineering restriction. You're not allowed to take. Oh, yes. You can't do it. Don't do that. Yeah. Don't do that. Yeah. You're not. It's not good. But no, there's, I mean, the problem there is knowing, right? And knowing that these things are bad or there's a problem with these. I mean, nobody's going to stop to do that work more than, you know, something that's very superficial, right? Yeah. We can spot when things are named a bit funky or we can, you know, but, um, I mean, going back a number of years ago when there was a case of fake uh, Cisco routers and switches, right, coming from a, a country out there in Asia, at, uh, yeah, that, that place. Um, but, no, I mean, it was a legitimate concern. I mean, the FBI was involved, governments involved in everything, and, and people were, would buy these things, and they work perfectly well. It says Cisco on it, and it works. What well, you know. I mean, there's all kinds of things, you know, the knockoff iPhones and stuff. Looks like an iPhone, but isn't one. You know, there's, 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 um, you know, knockoff, even knockoff guitars. They look just like the originals, and you know, they have the even down to serial numbers that they'll use because they've found them on the internet. You know, somebody's put a picture of a, their guitar serial number on the internet, so they've used that, right, in a, in a copy. You know, they, there's all kinds of stuff that unless you're an expert. Unless you know about these things, you will never know the difference. Never. That, that brings up an interesting point about how, I mean, why this happens, right? So if you're building, like if you're building a device and you go, well, I can either write this from scratch. I got to write my own device drivers, whatever, from scratch. Or I can buy this part that does it all for me. The, the mindset is I'm out, like I'm outsourcing the risk to the, to the manufacturer. Yes. Right. It's not, no longer really my concern. It's the guys who actually make the components concerned. So when you report it to the menu, like to, to the, uh, the person whose name is on the device, you know, the part of the delay is they don't know who actually made it. They got to find them and report it to them. If there's is a place to report it to. Right. You know, if you exactly. buy like the, the chip of the week, you might not have any support. Right. In that point, they just don't. Or they might be intentionally discounted because they want you to use them as many devices as you can. Here comes Craig. (laughs) (laughs) I just heard a train. We don't have trains in Joel Land, but we've heard about them. Oh, that's nice. There are no trains in Joel Land. In fact, uh, 
Joel once asked if there are trains in Africa. He asked you that, Matt? Well, he's never been, so. Was it, did, did anybody have an answer? I mean, can someone answer that right now? Are there trains in Africa? There are trains in Africa. <laughs> yeah, didn't you guys Thanks, see uh, Ghost in the Dark? Like, Ghost in the Darkness? Like, obviously, Val Kilmer came in on a train. There's obviously trains in Africa. But it's a movie. It doesn't have to be real. But you guys have all played Battlefield 1. You know there's trains in Africa. Why are we having this discussion? <laughs> well, I, I thought... But are they all armored? Only when you get to the top score. God. <laughs> so an interesting thing has started happening, right? We're seeing more and more compromised devices, fake firmware images, you know, fake flash updates. And this year, and perhaps in years previous to a lesser extent, we're starting to see fake topics extend into the news area to try and manipulate the public. Uh, Sean, why don't you talk to us a little bit about your new project? Absolutely. So so to touch upon what Craig was just talking about, right, for a long time, uh, disinformation has been a real issue on a global scale. Um, people have tried to send out propaganda um, and other kinds of fake information to sway the public's opinion about things, right? This could be about politics. This could be about uh, companies, whatever it happens to be, right? Um, so just recently, folks in uh, academia and industry started off a effort called the Fake News Challenge, and you can find more information about it at fakenewschallenge.org. Um, and, and the goal of that was to use machine learning and natural language, natural language processing to target fake news and disinformation campaigns. Well, hold on, so, let's slow it down and break this down for our audience here. So basically at a high level, this is a machine learning challenge to determine what types of news are fake and what types aren't. Yeah, and I think that the, one of the interesting things for us is that this is a problem that we face on a daily basis when we're trying to find out which email messages are spam or are not, right? It's just or when Joel tells issue. us stuff like he was mayor of a small town. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, we have to deal with Joel. It's a large metropolis now. <laughs> metropolis. <laughs> Yeah, so it's a really interesting problem to think about both from a uh, traditional infosec perspective, but then also just from a, uh, you know, a, a person who's involved in public society, right? So a lot of the time, the general public are exposed to things uh, like, like you said, spam emails or uh, what, what we're calling fake news recently, right? News articles that were uh, deliberately crafted to sway public opinion uh, toward a certain political stance, right? Whether it's for an election or for some kind of uh, uh, other kind of uh, topic, right? So uh, how this actually came to be and came to the attention of Talos um, is actually Nigel. Uh, so Nigel, a few months ago, if I recall correctly, brought it up in one of our uh, team chats and said, hey, this would be a cool thing for us to do. Um, so Nigel, actually, do you have any information about how you came to find it? Yeah, I, I was just uh, cruising around the internet like I normally do, and um, one of the so things in the bathroom. That, yeah, pretty much. I was in the bathroom <laughs> on my, my iPhone, uh, but I was uh, one of the things that bubbled to the top in one of my news feeds was talk of um, fake news, and then I was reading a couple of articles about that, and one of them pointed to the fake news challenge. And so I went and took a look and I thought, well, you know, this looks like something that our guys could be interested in since this is actually very similar to the things that we, the problems that we face with uh, spam emails specifically, you know, that, that the, the artful spammer, as you like, I mean, it's, it's quite easy for us, let's say, to catch the obvious things, right? As it always is, you know, low hanging fruit, that's what you're going to go for first. But over the years, 
Um, spam has gotten a lot trickier to catch and it's become much harder to spot whether it is fake or not. Right, and this is the same problem we see with news. Uh, and, and it's a common thing on the internet because there are so many things on the internet people can just go browse to. How do you know whether something is fake or not? And is there a way to distinguish it uh, effectively from regular news? I mean, the point here, right, is that it's it's not actually just a political problem, not just for conservatives right. or liberals or Republicans, right? It's it's a it's a problem that has affected human civilization for a long time, long before the internet has even existed, right? This idea of false information and how do you find what is false? It's being amplified a lot more now because of things like social media. Uh, you can create Twitter bots that can amplify your fa- false news story um, to a wide, wide population, right? And that will get the uh, that'll get the interest of real news organizations who might pick up the story. I mean, even even to the point where where Facebook recently have also jumped onto this and said that they are, you know, uh, making an effort to cut down on the number of fake news stories that people are allowed to share around their Facebook uh, network. Right. It's this then they're facing the same problem. How do they. How do they tell? How do they know? Because they couldn't possibly have an army of people sitting, you know, in offices kind of crunching through everybody's posts on Facebook. They need to figure out a way for machines to do that work. That's exactly right, Nigel. And so that's why uh, it came to the attention of my team. Um, so I, when my day job is I'm a research engineer on Talos's email team. So I spend my day uh, analyzing tons of data, uh, email data, uh, virus and malware data from all across the world, trying to find and block threats before they can affect our customers. And so uh, I, I pulled in uh, my teammate, Doug Sibley, and one of our other teammates, Yushi Pan, um, who both have a strong, strong technical background in machine learning. And I asked them if this would be something they're interested in. So we got kicked off on this effort um, and we ended up coming up with a pretty interesting model. Um, And so the idea of the first uh, instance of the fake news challenge was to do what's called stance detection. So how this kind of relates to spam emails and things like that is uh, every article and body that goes through, or every article body and article headline that goes through our model uh, our model can analyze the relationship between the body and the and the title. So, in other words, uh, the title uh, might be something like "ISIS develops a new capability to target the International Space Station," and the body of the article will say whatever it says. Right? You can run it then through our model, and our model can tell you whether or not the headline or the claim right agrees. So, I, I do want to get one thing, uh, you know, one serious fact in. So, you know, one of the things I always see is a lot of companies try to throw words like machine learning and AI around, and it's completely hollow and really just stands for the fact that they can't adequately articulate their algorithm. You know, who were you competing with here, and how many different teams were there? Like, was this really a fair challenge, or or what? Matt, Matt has uh, something. So I, I also want to <laughs> make very clear to, the, to, you know, everybody listening that, you know, artificial intelligence and machine learning – these are a lot of problems that as humans are very simple for us to kind of figure out. Um, maybe not so much fake news, but you know, a lot of people can pretty immediately look at and see like, Oh, those headline and that body doesn't match. And um, that that's something that's easy for human, but for a machine to actually program this and to do this automatically without human intervention is something that is very, very complex and takes a lot of thinking and work and research and is, you know, you have to figure out 
especially natural language processing, figure out, you know, meanings of words and sentiment and semantics. And it's it's a lot more complicated than just, you know, hashtag big data, uh, throwing it all in Hadoop, um, add in another buzzword here. Like, that's just not how this is going to be solved. So um, I'll let. Would it be fair to say it's like teaching a machine to fart? Sure. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. It sounds like an inside joke, but uh, <laughs> we got to sit really, sound really clip does. something. I want to use the sound clip of the next team offsides. <laughs> so, like, seriously though, uh, you, you were trying to detect like, n- like, purposefully misleading articles, right? Like, so at Talos, we had a problem during WannaCry where people kept asking us, "Where's our signature for the email vector of WannaCry?" And we would have to go, "There is none." So, I think that this is interesting. That, you know, I didn't really participate in the challenge, but the challenge actually wanted you to categorize headlines and bodies in four different ways. You, they either agreed with each other, disagreed with each other, they were unrelated, and then there was another one, Sean, what was it? It was a discussion, whether or not it was a discussion article. So, so Matt, that's exactly right. So, uh, so essentially... Uh, the organizers of the fake news challenge uh, have done a lot of research into machine learning and artificial intelligence, and um, they acknowledge that it's a very difficult problem for people to solve, and it's very political, right? It's how do you define what truth actually is, right? And sometimes there's misleading information versus false information, right? Kind of picking and choosing your statistics. So that's a very hard challenge. But the first step, as you mentioned, was stance detection. So finding out whether the article body agreed, disagreed, discussed, or was not related to the headline so understanding that kind of relationship uh and so so to kind of break apart how that can help in um in a real fake news detector um imagine there's a bunch of different news outlets right and they're they're weighted based on their credibility um and let's say there's this claim that comes out right uh, it can be about anything it can be about a company a terrorist group a politician and there's some kind of uh claim uh, if the higher uh, the the news outlets with higher uh, reputation, higher uh, credibility ratings, um, say that that is probably they disagree with that, uh, and then the uh, lesser and uh, less reputable uh, news outlets agree with it, then it's probably fake news because the folks who uh, we tend to trust with our knowledge are. Um, are all disagreeing with that kind of claim. So um, it's a very difficult challenge. So it was essentially just the first go and first uh, step in creating a real fake news detector. And to address the question before about who was participating in this challenge, because like you said earlier, um, the, the you know artificial intelligence and machine learning are big buzzwords now. Um, so some of Huge. our competitors, some of our... Yeah, exactly. So there was probably about 80 registered teams from all across the world, um, 50 of whom or 50 of which, I guess, uh, submitted a solution. And so uh, these teams were from academia and industry all across the world. Uh, I believe the second place team uh, was from uh, the Technische Universität Darmstadt in Germany. Uh, they're an actually a natural language processing uh, uh, research group. And so then fair the to say place, you were literally up against the top minds in this industry from across the world, from both a commercial competitive standpoint and from an academic standpoint. Absolutely. These were folks from uh, some of the premier uh, academic and research organizations from across the world. And uh, we came out on top, which is oh. uh, very exciting. Oh, number one. So you had to... Uh... You had to just analyze the text of articles. Was there, 
is that was that it or could you integrate things like the reputational score or like any kind of network analysis of the source of the article so we were only doing it on the bodies and article headlines so we didn't get any kind of information about where it was coming wow, from. wow that seems way harder that's so much harder right that because with that with the reputational score you're like well that that would be pretty like you attribute every article to it with a score but just based solely on analysis of the text seems really hard you guys are like freaking geniuses yeah, <laughs> they're like smart or something. Uh-huh. I thought the really interesting part of the solution, and Sean, you may get into this, is um, you guys didn't take one approach. There was two different models built in uh, that you kind of did a weighted average with uh, that, yeah, that's that got you the, the solution. So it wasn't just a singular, like we you went to, found, you know, a, what, what's the big one these days, the deep neural network or the you know, deep learning, and you just weren't going to say like, oh, doing deep learning, that's it. That's exactly right, uh, Matt. And so what we did was uh, we developed two separate models, one of which was a, a deep learning model, and the other one, uh, we co- it was a gradient-boosted decision trees approach, which is a more classical uh, machine learning uh, model. That's so, and so uh <laughs> and so so it's really interesting how they worked best we found at the end was actually weighting them uh with a 50 50 uh you know 50 50 percent so each of them did kind of half the effort here um what i think and, and that's kind of hard to understand i think in an abstract manner so what we did at the end of a blog post we put out is we actually ran our talos blog through our uh, our models right and so um, you can, if you go on talusintelligence.com, you can check out our, I think every, every single article, every single blog written by Craig came up as fake news. I don't know why. I have to point this out that in Joel land, all articles written by Joel are 100% true all the time by law. But by I stand law. for the official I, I, seal of her majesty's army. Yes, I do believe he they did will be soon. the gavel down on that. <laughs> yeah. So there is, in fact, a blog, uh, a, a blog article on the fake news blog articles. That's correct. So we, we put up a uh, on, on blog.talusintelligence.com on uh, Tuesday the 20th. Uh, we put up a blog post explaining uh, the issue with disinformation and fake news. Uh, and then we talked a little bit about the actual fake news challenge, gave a shout out to the organizers. And then we explained our models and how they worked. Uh, and finally, once I had all the text written, I ran the headline that I chose or the title, which was target Talos targets disinformation with fake news challenge victory. Uh, I threw that and our entire blog post into our model along with a couple other ones. Uh, my favorite headline that I tested was giraffe live stream continues to fourth week with no action. Um, <laughs> And turns out when we did a 50-50 modeling or a 50-50 weighting on our two models, uh, every single one of the headlines we put through uh, was correctly identified uh, with, with regard to its relationship with our blog post. So uh, it's really cool to see it actually work kind of in practice, right? With some with text that I wrote, um, you know, without meaning to have it work with our model or anything like that. So and that blog post is actually done very well uh on the blog since you put it up so obviously a topic that people are are rather interested in um so what's the next step i mean what what happens from here in terms of moving what you're working on forward so we have uh, open source our solution and that's available on the uh, cisco talos uh, github um but until then until uh while that's going on uh the organizers of the fake news challenge are beginning to organize the second uh second part 
uh, or the second stage, FNC2, of the fake news challenge. So uh, I think we don't have any information about what's going to be. It's yet. called FNC? Like <laughs> the Fox News Corporation? <laughs> <laughs> we got a lot of uh, funny comments coming to us uh, because various times in our uh, blog post, we used the terms FNC uh, with regards to the fake news challenge and CNN with regards to the convolutional neural networks we used. So, Perfect. Uh, oh my so God. a lot of people... <laughs> This is. Have you have you come up with something that could be an acronym for like MSNBC yet? Is that we're still working on that? Yeah. So, uh, listeners, if you have any ideas on how we can incorporate uh, more newsworthy puns into our blog post, uh, please A multi-site uh, neural background, no, multi-site check. neural machine site neural background check. Yeah. yeah. There you go. So, is uh, is any of this awesome technology? being integrated into Cisco products? So I'm glad you asked. So uh, we do have uh, various machine learning systems in place. Um, The aspect of which I am most familiar with is with our spam and malware detection. So um, in our various products, we have machine learning models running to classify things like spam um, and and all kinds of uh, different malicious things to make sure that these things do not hit our customers. Um, Because what the bad guys like to do, as we talked about before, is they like to play upon things they've done before, but mutate these threats so that uh, traditional systems do not catch them as easy as a human reviewing it would. Um, and so these machine learning systems allow us the opportunity to uh, to let the machine analyze this and hopefully catch the threats before anyone's seen them before. So, great question. Well, I mean, you, you can do that, right? You use the machines to get rid of all the chaff and then so the humans can concentrate on what's left. That's exactly right. Yeah, I think that's that's my my biggest complaint about some security marketing is they say, oh, we use machine learning and we use artificial intelligence and we're the best. And I'm like, if if nobody's no human is looking at your results, you are so screwed. See, that's the the both the the challenge and the cool part about security is that you have an adversary of somebody that is actively trying to get around all of your detections. So like they can do a 180 degree pivot and your models are completely wrong in about five minutes. Um, whereas if you are a bigger company doing more traditional machine learning, uh, you might be A-B testing your website, colors, uh, layout. That's not exactly the case. And that's always been my like big annoyance with when you hear, oh, machine learning, big data, artificial intelligence, all of this stuff is securities is a, is a different beast altogether. With regard to what uh, what Matt was saying earlier, uh, uh, that is that is the most important part with creating an artificial intelligence or machine learning system is you need to have that kind of ground truth um, um, data, right? You need to have data above anything else. And one thing that uh, Cisco and, and Talos are, are very lucky with is the amount of data that we have available to us. So I would say where that puts us kind of ahead of the, the competition is in, in how much data we have and, and how we use that uh, to better protect our customers against the bad guys. Exactly. And, and at what point do we combine these smart people and machine learning algorithms into some sort of metal exoskeleton so that we can arm it and have it police our Internet? So no, we I, need a bigly, a bigly amount of data. So, I mean, for the most part, I would say that any machine learning models that we're running are not going direct. They're not feeding directly into detection. They are passing through a human first. So that big you know, terabytes and terabytes of data is getting broken down to the most important stuff and the stuff that looks the worst. And then a human is checking that, which uh, is definitely better for your your detection down the line. 
It's like we always say, we get so much data that we toss aside 99.98% of that. And in order to get there, machine learning is an invaluable part. Without it, we wouldn't be able to find the pieces that we need people to look at because they're new and interesting. Yeah, I mean, the whole idea is that, you know, especially the amount of data that we bring in and analyze is that thing of, you know, let's we'll take out all the low-hanging fruit and then what's left over, you know, we'll, we'll do it again. And then we'll do it again. And then we'll finally get to the point where we have a manageable amount of information that our analysts can actually take a look at and then make a human decision on and, and, you know, figure out how do we detect this? What do we need to do with this? Is this something brand new? You know, et cetera. And, and then, you know, produce that detection for all the Cisco products. That's a good little parting shot there. The, like the makeup of a security researcher in the last 10 years has gone from my perception of a guy in front of Ida Pro. Who's, who speaks assembly yes. to yeah. a guy in front of Tableau <laughs> who speaks JSON. Correct. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's room for both still, but, you know. It's... Yeah, there's room for both, and that's why, you know, my team, uh, that's what they do is they try to filter all of that data down to the researchers who only have, you know, they only have a specific amount of time to look at a couple samples in Ida Pro or reverse those samples. You can't drop the you know, millions and millions of stuff we get them on a day and say, okay, figure out the bad stuff. Um, and you can't expect them to do the machine learning and the Ida Pro. I mean, there's some super people that can do that, but. But just because you don't have machine learning as a key point on your product slide doesn't mean there's not machine learning in the process, right? Whoa, wait. I thought that's how the slide starts. You have the machine learning and then you add the template. No, it's. Image, you're the marketer here. Data. You want to chime in on this? <laughs> Are you saying that the big data writes the slides? Is, is that what we're. We're getting it here. Yep. Slides are generated. Sean, I want to get one more. Uh, any parting shots or anything you want to make sure you mention before we before we start wrapping up? So use your uh, you know, it's key takeaways uh, about the project and about anything else that you want to talk about with it. So the idea here is that uh, while some people are uh, touting uh, deep learning, machine learning, and artificial intelligence as kind of the king of security in their products, uh, we here at Talos uh, have been pushing the edge of machine learning and deep learning research um, to not only solve problems that our customers are facing uh, on their networks, but also problems they're solving uh, every day. Um, we faced a team or we faced a challenge of over 80 teams from uh, the, some of the best minds across the world. And uh, we came out on top. And so one of the things that we are trying to dedicate ourselves to is to maintain uh, that kind of cutting-edge research uh, to protect our customers and just to protect the world against these kind of threats. How pissed do you think those like large academic research teams where their whole lives are pinned on an LP uh, are mad that you guys won? So, you know, I can't comment on all that, but I do know that, that none of our work would have been possible uh, except for those uh, those academic researchers out there really trying to drive innovation and, and push uh, the mathematical boundaries of what's possible. So um, it was a great challenge. It came down to the wire. Um, and, and really, our competitors all did a great job with this. So uh, we look forward to uh, challenging them again in round two. And by challenging, he means Talos will humbly crush you to number two or lower again. <laughs> Once again, we will bathe in the tears of our enemies. With a beer. <laughs> Nigel, as long as you keep uh, buying us better and better GPUs, then I think uh, we should be good to go here. So I'm, I'm going to throw this, uh, this all on you. I'm on it, buddy. <laughs> Just tell me how many you need. I'll get them. Roger that. So, uh, Joel, do you have any parting shots you want to leave for anybody? Joel. Joel. 
No, I just really want to get more information on ISIS taking over the space station. It's, <laughs> it's very concerning. That's some crazy stuff. Super. Like, that seems like an easy... What? Yeah, because it's the International Space Station. They just need to get rid of an eye. Go out yeah, there with, I like, mean, a Sharpie marker do, and, like, color it in. Just put it in, yeah. I think what exactly. this really is is a branding war, so Mitch, you'd be the expert on this. I'm surprised they haven't started releasing their own episodes of Archery yet. and that's going to just about do it for us today I do want to thank our co-host Craig Williams Matt Only Joel Essler Nigel Houghton and I do want to say a special thank you to Sean Baird from the Talos Threat Intelligence team Uh, he and his team winners of stage one of the fake news challenge wish you guys luck in the future rounds and we'll keep up with your work there thank you for tuning in this week we hope to see you next time remember to subscribe leave a comment uh, like share retweet all that stuff and we will catch you next time on another episode of beers with talos cheers today The part of Matt only is being played by Kate Nolan. And the part of Joel Essler is being played by Dave Maynard.